This talk was given at Insight Meditation South Bay. For more information and a schedule of our events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Buddhang damang sanghang sanamasami. So when I was asked to speak about the first precept, I was delighted. <laughs> I, um, I'm so grateful to the Buddha for being so clear and uncompromising and for the opportunity to learn about where that clarity and um, uncompromising position comes from. So I want to talk about that a bit tonight and then I want to hear and and discuss because there are many areas that are challenging around this precept, as I'm sure you know. The precept, of course, is Panatipata veramanisikapadang samadhyami and in English that's I take on the precept to refrain from taking the life of any living creature. So that word pana tipata, so pana is like in Sanskrit prana, it's breath, it's breath energy, it's life force. So to not take the life, to not end the life of any living being. And the Buddha was referring to human beings, animals, um, insects, but not plants. Um, They don't have the the kind of consciousness, the level of consciousness that that humans and animals and, and insects have. And the Buddha was unequivocal he made no exceptions. It wasn't, you know, don't kill except for this or that. Nothing like that appears in, in the Pali canon. So for myself, I, I feel like before becoming exposed to the Buddhist teachings, I had doubts about whether or not there were times when killing is appropriate. I don't know, appropriate's kind of a weak word there, whether or not it's the right thing to do. I was raised in a, in a very sort of fundamentalist Christian environment, and of course, thou shalt not kill 
but there were clearly many beliefs and uh, encouragement, I would say, in the direction of believing that there were times when it was correct to, to take life, even human life. You know, there were crimes that people felt were, were required, where you really should punish by, by execution. Certainly, many people believed that war was correct or acceptable under some circumstances. And certainly, um, the way I grew up, I grew up on a farm. Taking lives of animals was really part of it. Part not Fortunately, I didn't have to do that. And uh, I learned that my, my mother never had to do that. She grew up on a farm also. One of her sisters did the chopping off the heads of the chickens, and my mother had to clean them. But I see the grimace. <laughs> Yeah, if we had to do that, we might rethink our, our dietary needs. And my, what I was taught, what I was told is it's okay because animals don't have a soul. And yet, if you get close to an animal, you learn about that animal, you see its fear. Even if you don't get that close to them, I remember my father taking one of the goats, one of the kids, and slaughtering it for a barbecue. And when you're there and, and you know, they cut the throat and the ble- hang it upside down so it bleeds out, and all the other goats are crying and screaming because they know what's happening. It's part of their family one of their brothers or sisters. And, you, and there's something in your gut that tells you that this is just wrong. Can't be, can't be right. So when the Buddha, when the Buddha talked about not taking life, he was coming not from a, a moralistic perspective not a thou shalt, or, but from an, a, a deep and clear understanding of the workings of karma. Because on the night of his enlightenment, he saw his own many, many, many past lives. He saw how he was born in this place, in this family, in, with this kind of nutriment, food, and this experience of pleasure and pain, with this name, and how he passed away, how long he lived, what his life term was, and how he passed away, how he lived his life, and, and then to be reborn in another situation with a name there and a clan there and a life term there and an experience of pleasure and pain and all those details. And he could see many, 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 many thousands hundreds of thousands of past lives of his own and how the cause of how he lived conditioned the next lifetimes. And then he saw that for others, for other human beings. How they, they would live and the things that they would do and then how they would be reborn. And so this is the complete clarity of how our actions 
create our future. Now, most of us don't have that kind of insight. But you might. It's not unheard of. And it's, it's maybe not be as uncommon as you'd think to at least have some memory of things that had come before. But in case we don't, we can see how our actions create our future just in this lifetime. And something as simple as how do I greet the person I see first in the morning? It sets up the day. Um, it sets up how that person probably interact, or it may set up how that person interacts with the next person they come in contact with. And we all know that. And that's a simple, sort of light example. But when we think about the harder things, like taking life, if we can, if we can really let that sink in, how that determines our future. Um, we can start to understand why the Buddha was so unequivocal. He never said, well, um, it's okay to kill if someone's threatening you or threatening your family or threatening your country. And it was because he was operating with an understanding of what's beyond this very, very temporary, you can almost say momentary life. Coming from the attitude that we're all going to die anyway. What do we want to be doing after this? How do we want to be living? What do we want to... Do we want to purify the mind, purify the heart, and get you know, greater and greater peace and happiness? Or not? And so to relate that, to connect those things, to connect our actions with our future, with also what we can bring to the world, um, that it really matters what we do, what we say, what we think, really matters. So the the Buddha, when he talked about um, what's wholesome and what's unwholesome, there's a passage here in the Majjhima Nikaya, in Sutta number 114, where he talks about um, the bodily conduct that causes unwholesome states of the mind to increase and the wholesome states to diminish in one who cultivates it that should not be cultivated. So if you're cultivating, if you're doing some action that brings up more unwholesome states and causes the wholesome states of mind, the peace of mind, the love, the love, the kindness, the generosity to diminish, we shouldn't cultivate those things. And then he talks about bodily conduct. You know, what, what is this bodily conduct causing unwholesome states to increase? Here someone kills living beings. He's murderous, bloody-handed, given to blows and violence, merciless to living beings. And then later he talks about the other side. What kind of bodily conduct causes unwholesome states to diminish and wholesome states to increase? Someone abandoning the killing of living beings, abstains from killing living beings, 
with rod and weapon laid aside gently and kindly, he abides compassionate to all living beings. What a, what a shift. When I was taught how to fish, I was given the definite impression that I was a wimp if I didn't put that worm on my own hook. So I overcame my squeamishness. And now I would say, don't ever teach a child that. It's not squeamishness. But standing up to the forces in our society that say, you have to be rough, you have to be tough, you have to put people in their place, you have to slam people down, you have to punish. That can be tough. That takes courage. I think that's what we could teach our children. The Buddha also talked about this... um, this rule in the in the monastic code that says that monks and nuns um, should not eat any meat that you think, that you hear, you see, or suspect might have been killed for you. So a lot of times people say, well, if I'm going to take the five precepts, then I have to be vegetarian, and the Buddha did not make that a stipulation. You follow the logic of it where he's trying to encourage everybody to not kill. People are going to start tending more towards vegetarianism because where's that meat going to come from, right? But it's very different to eat the meat or to kill the animal. And that's why we cringe. We wouldn't want to, most of us I don't think, would want to do the slaughtering ourselves. And this is not at all in any way to make guilt arise. This is not, Buddhism is not about guilt. It's not about guilt. It's about understanding the way things work. And whatever we've done in the past, there's always a spiritual recovery. I shot a rabbit. Actually, I did it twice. They were invading my garden. And I remember how that felt and I remember how it looked when that rabbit got hit, jump, fly into the air. How horrible. But we learn. And unwholesome or unskillful behavior leads to skillful behavior if we take that in as as a lesson has something to face. So my, my feeling for all the 30 years or more that I've been a vegetarian is it's a very personal choice. Some bodies need different things. I would never say, oh, this is what you should do. And the Buddha didn't either. But what he said was he didn't want people killing animals to feed the monastics. He had 
thousands of monastic disciples wandering around the country with their alms bowls. And so that made a huge impact on their society. And it's a teaching as well as a, um, a freeing of the negative karma to not have that happen. And here's a passage in Sutta 55. It's the Jivaka Sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya. And he said, If anyone slaughters a living being for the Tathagata, which is what he called himself, the Buddha, or his disciple, he lays up much demerit in five instances. So the Buddha's teaching, like, don't, don't be a butcher, don't be a slaughterer, pull away from those things. When he says, go and fetch the living being, this is the first instance in which he lays up much demerit. So demerit, negative karma. When that living being experiences pain and grief on being led along with a neck halter, this is the second instance in which he lays up much demerit. When he says, go and slaughter that living being, so telling someone else to do it, this is the third instance in which he lays up much demerit. When that living being experiences pain and grief on being slaughtered, this is the fourth instance in which he lays up much demerit. When he provides the Tathagata or his disciple with food that is not permissible, so having killed it for the Sangha, for the monastics, makes it unpermissible for the Sangha, this is the fifth, fifth instance in which he lays up much demerit. Anyone who slaughters a living being for the Tathagata or his disciple lays up much demerit in these five ways. Just to kind of give a sense of the Buddha's sensitivity, even the, even the pulling the animal along. So this is just, this is just um, sort of one segment of where we can really start to investigate how do I, I want to work with this precept of not killing? And what do I really think about that? You know, we all have our conditioning. Do I think it's okay to live the farm life the way I grew up? Now they have much more... Um, tragic situations for for farm, farm animals than when I was young. It was just starting to get into that factory farming thing back then. So that's that's one part. That's one aspect. What about war? I I um, visited some of my relatives that I hadn't seen in twenty or thirty years last month. And a number of my cousins went to Vietnam and um, they started talking about it. And, and, my, and some of my cousins' husbands. And it was, it was very interesting. My cousin, one cousin's, her husband said that he had a very peculiar experience. He was draft. He he was gonna, just about to be drafted, and he decided to enlist. He said, "It's kind of like you know you're going to get fired, so you say I'm quitting." <laughs> <clears throat> and he got um, assigned to the 101st Airborne Division, which was on the front lines. 
and he was one of you know they they get up get in the helicopter and they go and they get dropped on a mountain and have to fight but he had very strong faith in god and he kept thinking to himself god said all things are possible and what's the probability maybe maybe i won't have to kill anyone and it was funny in his whole explanation of what happened he never talked about worrying about his own safety he was worried about killing and he said he would he said there would be mission mission x and they would drop men on this mountain and that mountain and the southern mountain and he would get dropped on this mountain in the middle and there'd be fighting on the other two mountains and where he'd get dropped nothing nothing was happening didn't see one enemy and then mission y and they'd get dropped on this mountain and this mountain and he'd get dropped on the third mountain and the other two mountains there's all this fighting and the one he gets dropped on there's nothing this happened over and over again and then some new guy had come into the unit and someone would say stick with that guy go wherever he goes stick to him like glue and you'll be fine and it became common knowledge he said he got so relaxed he just had it was so common i mean so many missions that he would be up in the heli- he was up in the helicopter they're going to the mission he falls asleep. Everybody else is on pins and needles, understandably afraid, tense. How can you fall asleep? He's like, nothing's going to be happening. And nothing happened. Then a new commander came in, and he said, okay, I, wanna, I want to see the person who's been here the longest, who served the longest in this unit. It was my my cousin's husband. He had spent 19 months doing this. He said, I'm going to send you back to the base. You're going to spend the rest of your tour of duty eating good food and just taking it easy. The guys started a petition. 250 men signed it. Don't take him. Don't take him. We need him. He's our protection. The commander's like, you people are nuts. He's going back. After that, they had all this combat. The men said, can you please come back? (laughs) Now, what's that about? What happened there? My guess is it's karma. (laughs) Karma, determination, a purity of heart. Um, his faith in God, his, but that, that purity of heart, that, that clarity that he didn't want to harm. I'm not saying that that blames anybody for any other kind of experience. I had another cousin sitting right there. He talked about the hell he went through. Getting wounded, his whole company getting wiped out, two-thirds of the men in the unit. You know, horrible things, and it's not a judgment about anybody. But if we if we if we start to just take in that 
we have choices around how we think and speak and act. And we have some control over that. And we have control over precious little else in this world. That we can really begin to take that seriously and start to try to get clear about our, our views and our understanding of how this works without blaming anyone, without discrediting anyone, but just to see this leads here and that leads there. And then there's all this mix in the middle of doing it somehow, doing it not, doing it a little. Karma is not easy to figure out. The Buddha said, don't try, your head will explode. Because we do some good and we do some not good. And so my son once said, you go to a restaurant, you sit down at the table and you order a cup of coffee. And the person at the table next to you orders a four-course meal. When they bring the check, you get the check for the coffee. That guy gets a check for the four-course meal. It's just like that. So what do we do with the really tough decisions, the tough challenges? Abortion, euthanasia, putting down pets, war, terrorism. What do we do? I know what the Buddha said. Stand in your purity. It's better to be killed than to kill. Don't have to fear that. There isn't really anything we have to fear except making bad karma, breaking the precepts, breaking the moral precepts. It's really interesting when you start to think about things from that perspective. So I've probably raised some questions in your mind, I hope. And I'd like to hear them or views, opinions, thoughts, complaints. Yes? Is it okay if we record the questions so that your answers are recorded? Yeah, I'm completely fine with that. And I, I didn't catch your name when you said it earlier. Uh, Brinley. Brilly? Yeah. Brinley. Brinley. Brinley with an N? With uh, N. Okay. L-E-Y. Okay. Yeah. Brinley. Um, so, like, with abortions, um, uh, if we think plants as not having the same consciousness, and that's why it's okay um, to kill and like, if we look at science, because um, they don't have a nervous system, they can't feel pain, they can't feel feelings to the level that we do, and animals can. And but um, if we look at like a fetus at a time where they don't have the nervous system, and they don't feel 
um, feelings as like a full-grown baby would, would that still have the same con- uh, consequences as... So I can't say that I know for sure about when. But I know that the Buddha said you need three things for a human being. You need the egg and the sperm and a living being to come in. Because we don't just get created right there. We're coming from a previous lifetime. When that living being is there, then you're taking the life of a living being. And to assume that the living being's not there when you can see a, f- a forming human at a very early stage would probably be very dangerous. So the first thing that's important to say is for anyone who's had an abortion, again, Buddhism is not about guilt. So it's not to feel bad. It's about what do I do with the result of that? Where's the path of spiritual purity that I can take? I have a a sister, not a physical sister. I don't happen to have any of those, but I have a lot of nuns who are sisters who had an abortion before when she was young. And she said she carried that child on her shoulder for two years. And it wasn't just a psychological thing. It was the energetic presence of the baby. And she did a lot of purification to, to, to support that living being on his way. And it's, like we're, it's not like the other world is somewhere else. <laughs> and and when, when our life ends, however it ends, we go on, and a baby that's aborted goes on. But when we put an end to the life of our own child... There is karma involved. And it's, it's sad to me that in our society we've coupled this idea of being able to end the life of the fetus with a woman's rights. You have the right to do that. I think that that's a mistaken connection. What we need to focus on is a woman's right to not be impregnated if she doesn't want to be. We need to really put a lot of focus on that. I think we need to focus on contraception that keeps us from getting pregnant if we don't want to be pregnant and really encourage that. But the idea that a woman has the right to choose to end the life of her baby puts women in an, a, a mental state or a belief system that says it's okay like a medical procedure to get rid of this that I don't want is not convenient now or is dangerous for me. You can, we can go to the extreme cases and then we're in a real quandary, but I've met women who are not in danger for their health 
but it's not convenient for them to have the child. And their belief is, I have the right to choose, and I choose to end this pregnancy. They don't understand the karma. They don't understand the results. And they're not doing the purification that should happen to help them overcome that karma so it affects them in the future. Now this may sound difficult to take in, but this is what I believe the Buddha knew. And I think it's important for us to help each other understand that and I, and I wouldn't advocate that we make it impossible or illegal or any of that. Because we always have to work with these difficult situations and sometimes you have to take on the karma. But to know what you're taking on and to not make it, okay, this is the easy out. Women need to be respected and protected. We need to really be helped and uplifted in our rights. But that's not this right to choose. This is a misguided idea. Seriously. Yeah, Dave. couple things. I understand uh, the story I heard was that Buddha died after eating tainted meat. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've heard that the Dalai Lama started eating meat, he says, because his doctors told him it was necessary for mm-hmm. his health. Mm-hmm. Is that sort of a compromise in a way? Or? I don't think so. Like I said, Buddha was very clear that eating meat is very different from killing animals. The Buddha didn't want the person to kill the the pig for that dish, and the Buddha knew it was going to kill him. Mm. Um, he he told the the donor to take the rest of it and and bury it because he said he didn't know of anyone but the Tathagata who could digest it. Mm-hmm. And basically, it was like, don't let anybody else eat this. He knew it was his time. And eating meat, I mean, like I said, I I could never, you know, I I had a coworker once who every Thanksgiving he would send out these horrible images to everybody in the company to at Thanksgiving time to just give them all the willies, you know, and I I mean it's like no. <laughs> not, not a good idea. We have different bodies and different needs. Some people tell me that they really need the meat. And, of course, cult, there are cultures where you just wouldn't get the nutrition you need if you didn't, you know, hunt. But a lot of cultures, I think, understand that there's a karma involved. And they're, they're do, they, they work with that energy. And so this is the part that, we're, that we've gotten separated from. That, that there are ways to work with these situations, but they, we have to really understand them and do it. Okay. The other question is, um, it sounds as though karma, the idea of karma suggests that it's like blaming the victim. Hmm. You know, everything that happens to you, you asked for by some previous behavior. That is, that is a very good question, and I appreciate you bringing yeah. that up because it's not the case. Um, there are 
a, a variety of reasons why things happen that are not karma. Mm-hmm. Illness, um, accident, yeah. um, even weather. You know, I mean, there are all kinds of things that can happen that are not karma. That's why it's very hard to sort. Very hard to sort. And you can't, this idea that, you know, you see someone who's got a disadvantaged life and you think, oh, well, they did something bad in their past life and that is really wrong-headed. That is the wrong way to think of karma. We don't know. We don't know that. That person might be purifying something. That person might be way more advanced than we are. We don't know any of that. Yeah, Steve? There's also another aspect to that, that, you know, it is possible a person is suffering for something they did in a past life. But then again, if you look down at them and say, well, they deserve it, there's most probably something you did in a past life, which if it doesn't show up badly in this life, will happen in the next life. So that's why the optimal thing is to develop the problem of Vaharas, and especially in that case, compassion. And it really is compassion because you're all in the same boat. I mean, you know, it's coming down, down the line for you, you know, so don't yeah. gloat. Yeah, and the other thing that I've noticed in my own practice is I've become more sensitive to what's going on in my own mind and what's going on in my life is that when I have negative judgments about others and the choices they make and the situations they're in, I very quickly find myself in the same kind of situation. It's it's really quick. And, it, and it's like it, when I'm there, what kind of decision will I make how will I handle it? And it's it's as if life is just like going to teach me right now. I've learned like when I start to get judgmental, I back off. It's like bring up the compassion, bring up the equanimity. You know, it, it's like something is bringing that person to that place. Everything is preconditioned, but nothing is predetermined. This is something Ajahn Amaro said to me one time, and it's just great. I need that bumper sticker in my mind. Everything is preconditioned, but nothing is predetermined. So that means right now we make the choices. We can turn things. It doesn't matter. That's not quite right. Whatever we've done in the past, whatever we're experiencing, whatever conditions we have in our life, whatever conditions someone has in their life that you see that's really struggling and suffering, is like what we do with these conditions now is what sets the future. There's a way to learn. And the more we support each other, the more we lift each other up out of poverty, out of despair, out of awful circumstances, the more we purify our own mind and the more we support them to see how to purify theirs, give them the chance. So abiding compassionate for the welfare of others, this is the, the other part of the precept, is really, it, this, this is where we start to make the, the kama that really helps to lift up the mind and bring about more wholesome mental states. It's an, it's an essential part. And that doesn't grow and develop if we're uh, casting, you know, dispersions on others. And Yeah. Rebecca? I kind of have a dilemma going on. My um, 
My house has termites. The perennial question. Yes. Termites, so. ants. Oh, I know, I know. So Ajahn Chah. Um, so, it, so in Thailand, in the monasteries, they go through great lengths to try to avoid killing. And it's for it's it's tropical forest, so you've got all kinds of wildlife in there, and like some of it's scary stuff. Spiders, like oh man, big, um, and termites, and you know they they have they build things like the huts with with water water troughs around so that the ants can't cross and the termites can't cross, hopefully, and try to keep that all clean and, you know, really try to make every effort to deter them from taking down the buildings. But sometimes, and, and oil rags, you know, around the posts and you build the hut off the ground and all that stuff. But sometimes... Uh, they just kind of take over anyway. Well, Ajahn Sumedho tells this story about he, how he was in his hut. And these huts are, you know, like six by eight, maybe, or some size like that. Not very big. Maybe a little bigger than that. And um, he woke up, and, and there was this swath of termites, like three feet wide, going through his hut. And he was just freaking out. It's like, oh. He, he took his took his bedding and he left and he went to the sewing kuti and he slept there and he thought for sure his hut would be completely destroyed by morning. <laughs> and he said he came back and the termites were all gone. They were just kind of like coming through to say hi. <laughs> Pay respects or something. And uh, one time when I was at Wat Bananajat, I I felt very fortunate because they gave me a a kuti, one of the new kutis in the women's section. I was a nun in, uh, I think I was a nun in white robes. Anyway, whatever. Um, and this was a new hut, and it had a its own bathroom, its own toilet block, just like behind the hut. And I thought, wow, this is going to be great. So I go in there, and there are black ants everywhere. Really, like, so my son was a monk there at that time, and I went to my son, and I said, look, I got this horrible black ant problem. It's just like the whole bathroom is running with black ants. And just, I mean, really intense. <laughs> and he's like, eh, just splash some water around and let them know that this is not a good place. I'm like, really? Is it? <laughs> it's not going to do it? Did you, you didn't see it? No, he said, just... So I went back and I splashed some water around. And, and these big, big ants, they're not going to get hurt or anything by the water, so you splash water around. And I left the bathroom alone. And I came back in two hours and they were all gone. All gone. And the, inside the toilet tank, they had built a condo. <sighs> and, I, and I took it all away. And they didn't come back. Okay, but then we have the thing where they've already infested the the house, and one time this happened with the huts, and Ajahn Chah said, 
kill the termites, I'll take the karma. So understanding that there's something that happens and and what we need to do, what do we need to do about it? was one time uh, someone was t- uh, meeting with me and we were taking a walk in the, just this little garden place up in Palo Alto. I don't remember what it's called. Um, the ha- the Packard hat? Was it? Gamble Gardens. So the lady came with her car and her car was parked there in the lot and we were talking and, and walking around the garden. So when we came back, I guess it was the time of year, all these little worms had come out of the trees and they were all over the pavement and they were all over her car. On the tires. I mean, there was no way to like clear them away. She had to go home, you know. So what do you do? Well, the Buddha was clear that the intention behind the killing is crucial. If we kill accidentally, um, that's not that's not a breaking of the precept. In this case, it wasn't exactly accidentally, but you had to move the car. There's no way you're going to get all those worms off the tires, even let alone the, you know. So there's something in the heart that wish for the well-being of those little living beings, that they may, those that that don't survive, may they go on to a a good rebirth. Um, And that was one of the things I really learned when I started to not kill small beings, which, I mean, back on the farm, a mosquito hits lights on you, you smack it, you get, go around the house with fly swatters, you know, it's like smush, as if it's nothing. And when I was in the monastery in Thailand and with the monks and they didn't kill anything, intentionally kill anything, that was the first time I'd seen that. And so, of course, I I also was would practice that. It takes a little while to change the habit of not slapping the mosquitoes, but you can change the habit. And what I found, I mean, really investigating, is it really matter that much to that mosquito? Is that maybe a good way to go? You know, how much lifespan would they have anyway? What's, you know, really looking, trying to work with my own mind. But what I found was that my heart was becoming more soft, more tender, more empathetic, more kind, more gentle. So I don't know if it's better for them to get run over by the car or whatever, but I know it's better for us not to harm them on on purpose. So would a skillful skillful action perhaps, you know, after I get my house tented or whatever, um, maybe dedicate some volunteerism toward... Yeah, that would be a beautiful thing to do. But you can do things beforehand, too. Mm -hmm. You can chant the Buddha's words of loving kindness. Mm -hmm. There's a chant um, that um, we could probably send you the link to that's a, a chant to 
basically chant for all the living beings, the, the, the two-footed, the four-footed, the no-footed, and, you know, like, all that love, and then say, but we don't want you to be here. Please go away. <laughs> the protection. And so you can do that ahead of time. And put them on warning. Let them know, I don't want to harm you, but please live somewhere else. Because we're going to bring this in and Yeah. I once heard a, a saying of a Quaker woman who, uh, during the Civil War, she lived in a border state, and her her um, farm was frequently raided by Confederate soldiers mm. who were looking for food basically Mm -hmm. and so I don't know what she you had a gun for but she went out on the front porch and she said um, and she pointed the gun at them and she said I would not harm a hair on thy head but thou art standing where I am about to shoot (laughs) (laughs) I've put you on warning (laughs) Yeah. You know, the, 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 the thing to notice is that the Buddha was very clear about what's okay to do and what's not okay to do. And when people are threatening us or threatening our family or threatening our country or whatever, they're doing something that's wrong. They should be stopped, but not by killing them. And if we actually threw all of our technical ingenuity behind that concept, we'd have a very different kind of police System. We'd have a very different kind of military. We'd have a very different attitude about things. And I think we could do a lot to inhibit people from doing what's unwholesome and really protect people instead of creating so many enemies in the world. And you could say, well, that's very idealistic. But it's grounded in a much bigger understanding a much bigger understanding of life and death and going on from here and having been wherever before. And the, and the reality that every major religion says that hatred doesn't end by hatred, only by love. Can we stop people from, from killing, destroying, annihilating with our love? I think so. But we're not capable of doing it really unless we have that total commitment. If there's an exit clause that, oh, but when it gets this bad, then we retaliate with violence. Then it's half measures. It doesn't work. This is not necessarily a popular position I've taken. But I don't care. <laughs> You have to make it more unpopular. I should point out it's true of all the precepts. Mm-hmm. You know, like we were talking about with lying, people go to the most extreme examples so they can have a way out. Yeah, yeah. That way out hangs us. It really, it really hurts us, whatever we think that is, that exception clause. The Buddha didn't give it. 
Some people say he didn't give an exception clause because he didn't he didn't want to deal with the the wider problem of having some crazy person become in charge of a country and do horrible things and bring a whole population into doing horrible things that something like that has to be stopped with violence. I don't agree. I think the Buddha didn't give an, an, a way out of this because there is no way out of it. If we kill intentionally, there's suffering coming. And I think that it's just important that we know that, that we understand that, that we teach our children that, that we help them through the, ch- the tough challenges, the difficult problems. And don't elect people who want to annihilate your fellow citizens, by the way. Um, Well, I want to thank you for raising a really difficult, sticky topic and being open to discuss all the many ways that this really touches our lives. And so I think with almost each area that you spoke about, I could raise a question. But um, I think the one I'd like to speak about is um, women choosing, now that there is the medical capability to determine if a fetus might have some disability um, and um, a couple or a woman making the decision to have an abortion uh, so as not to bring that child into the world and have to you know face all that would be required um, I just find it very interesting right now that um, the Zika virus is becoming so much of a problem. And um, it's not a topic that I've discussed with many people, but I think it's a backlash. It could be a backlash for not allowing children to come into this world that are still working out karma. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I very can't, hard I, to say. I can't go there. Yeah, yeah but yeah. the point is that. Um, when I was pregnant with my second son, um, they didn't have those tests. And even if I'd had it, um, I don't think we would have decided to have an abortion. Mm-hmm. But um, he came into our lives as a, a Downs baby and lived to be 54. And um, I I look back and, and did... Uh, you know, look at his life many times. Um, all the people that he touched and um, the caregivers that um, he ultimately had. And um, his life was valuable. Uh-huh. I mean, to say nothing, you know, of what he brought to me. 
Um, so it's just another interesting piece. Yeah, it is. It's very, very real. I know someone very well who was pregnant in early, like in the third month or fourth, not that early, um, had one of those tests that showed this child might be defective and what that did to her feeling about that child, what that did to the family as they were wrestling with this. Fortunately, the next reading showed that the baby was fine. It was within normal range. Those tests are so prone to being mistaken and to end that life carries a heavy cost. And you might say, well, giving that life, supporting that life is also a heavy cost, but it's also a great reward. And I can't say what any individual should do, really, but I can say that the comma is there, the results, the, the suffering. No matter what kind of trick we play on the mind to say, oh, it's okay. The comma is there. Yeah, Rebecca. I just was thinking about euthanasia because um, I know in my life I've killed a couple of animals because mm-hmm. it looked like they were going to die anyway and they were, they appeared to be in great agony. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I do examine that whole thing in my mind, it was like I couldn't stand watching them mm-hmm. suffer that much. Mm-hmm. So then it was almost, then it sort of seems like a selfish act. Um, it's very important to examine all of this. Yeah. And I, there's one um, master teacher in Thailand that I was, was with who, um, who said, Make them as comfortable as possible with the comma of putting them down um, is is real, you know. And again, you know, there may be situations where one decides this is this is the right thing to do, but then knowing there's comma and how to how to work with that comma. And again, it's not about a negative judgment of anybody's choice. But we have to be careful about what we, what we, what we put out there in the social kind of consciousness around right and wrong and, and what's easy and what's hard. I don't know if that makes sense, but we, we, we put out, you know, this is the, the way we do things here. This is the way we do things now. Everybody does it this way. And so it's okay. But that doesn't make it okay. About food and meat, I sort of liked some of the um, um, Native Americans where they give thanks to the animal for their life. They take full responsibility for taking the life. They respect the animal they express their gratitude. So it's, it's 
like taking that personal responsibility for the choice, not just saying it's nothing. Yeah. And I don't know what it feels like when you take that spiritual perspective on the the web of life and the connection we have with animals, with the connection we have with all life, as we are told Native Americans do or have done. Um, but it's like that that's the kind of inner work or the kind of work it doesn't all it's inner work, but then it becomes socially our work together too and what we teach each other and and the the sacredness and the importance of holding things sacred and and it's still it's got to be hard to kill and to not become inured to that violence and you know take it for granted that we have that right and i've seen people kill with a relish for killing and a sense of empowerment in being able to take life. And that is really dangerous. That is really dangerous. And this idea of the righteousness of redemptive violence is really dangerous. All those movies, all those stories, all those fairy tales, all those fables, all the cartoons, Popeye, all the way... The myth of redemptive violence, if someone's beating up someone, if someone's hurt someone in your family, then it's okay for you to go after them and do whatever. That's deep in our culture. And we are not looking at the karma. We call those people heroes. Very wrong-headed in terms of karma. And, and the more we can bring this to our consciousness, a conscious awareness, the more we can start to take a turn in our own path and also in the path of our culture. Also, when speaking of microcephaly, I had what I consider, I don't know, fortune or misfortune to um, work when I was um, a freshman in college taking care of microcephalic children there isn't any brain there Mm -hmm. they are seriously 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 defective most people don't keep them at home they institutionalize them because it's just about impossible Mm -hmm. to keep them at home Mm -hmm. and they are not happy in institutions yeah there's no brain there how's that happiness seen I don't well, and, and they're not physically happy. They are not... Mm-hmm. Nobody's holding them, singing to them. Nobody's paying any attention to them. Mm-hmm. And uh, they can be in, te- in pain, and nobody really knows because they're crying anyway of, of what, you know. It's mm-hmm. so hard to know. So I guess I'm saying... It's important to be aware. And there, there aren't easy answers to these things. Yeah. Very it's difficult answers. Uh-huh. Tough challenges. Awful answers. Tough challenges. And we need to really understand all of the, all of the ingredients, all of the aspects of those challenges. 
end-of-life challenges. When do you stop giving support to stay alive? These are very important questions. And, you know, it's, it's not like you're killing someone by denying them a feeding tube. There's nothing wrong with that decision. Someone doesn't want to continue living, and nature will take them if you don't provide that. But it's a tough, these are tough questions. Okay, one more question, Dave, or comment. What about suicide? I'm glad you brought that up. Um, In uh, this book of Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi talking about the Noble Eightfold Path, when he talks about right action and and, um, refraining from taking life, he says that suicide falls under the category of killing. But one of the things I've noticed in the Pali Canon is there, there are a number of suicide stories in the Pali Canon. And the Buddha talks about um, someone who's an arahant using the knife and blamelessly because he's not going on. There's no karma there. There's no greed, hatred, or delusion backing that choice. What I notice is that there's a very different, I think a very different idea around suicide than what I see in some other traditions where there's a, there's a clear damnation. I don't see that at all in Buddhism. So, you know, I think the circumstances around the suicide make a difference and the person's intentions and the suffering that they're experiencing. And I think that, you know, there's, there's a, an ending of this life and a continuation in the next one. And we need to step back, especially when we have so much grief or maybe guilt around our own role in a situation like that, step back and look at the bigger picture of that person's continuation. And that, you know, there's there's something they go on to. There's an opportunity there to learn what they need to learn. We'll all, we'll all move on into situations where we get to learn what we need to learn if we want to. Does that help? Yeah. I guess we're supposed to be finished, but I wanted to comment because I know that having a human... Do you have the microphone? I just wanted to comment on that because I've learned that having a human birth is pretty miraculous and so the suicide just so sad yeah it would go so in the face of that because you don't know what the next birth is going to be and the lack of the lack of understanding of that miracle yeah and what we can do with it and what we can, how we can use the Dhamma, which again is, is the Dhamma is here no matter whether there's a Buddha or not. It's not just in Buddhism, it's in nature. But how to understand Dhamma clearly and how to use it to, to, to find our way out of depression, to find our way out of self-concern, to see the truth of our connectedness, and to understand the results of our actions is is something that we can all move towards and and try to help each other develop 
And as we do, there's greater peace and security and strength into making these tough choices. <laughs>